and uh, so that's what we're doing. We're just basically organizing according to our actual history and our actual government the way it's supposed to be versus how it got resorted after the Civil War, okay? Because there hasn't been an identification system for real Americans until now. And so now we have launched our state credential system and that then issues an ID that identifies Americans as Americans. You see, they've had us in this weird status as an occupied country being occupied by our own military. And so you have to think of yourself as being in a war zone and needing to identify yourself every time you turn around. And so it's imperative that we have uh, reliable identification systems in place as long as that is true. Before we get into the show, I want to share with you the Z-Stack, a powerful immunity-building vitamin pack formulated by Dr. Zelenko, the founder of the Zelenko Protocol. Many of you may have seen my interview with Dr. Zelenko explaining how the combination of quercetin and vitamin C together is a powerful zinc ionophore gun which delivers zinc, the bullet, into the cell where the virus is. Zinc blocks the virus from getting into the cell. Quercetin and vitamin C together are a safe over-the-counter alternative to hydroxychloroquine. Access to this is needed when government restricts and bans effective treatments. Also, it has been established that high normal levels of vitamin D is important for warding off sickness and staying out of the hospital. With the dangers of the COVID shot, we need a strong immune system to keep from getting sick. The danger is getting sick. That's when the effects of the bioweapon shot takes over. The Z-Stack will provide you with a defensive weapon to fight a potential virus. You can see the studies and also buy yours today at the link below or at sarahwestall.com under shop. I also highly recommend C60 gel caps, daily zeolite detox, and my probiotic greens to maintain a healthy body, all of which you can get at my shop at sarahwestall.com under shop. Yeah, they split the offices and they split the roles. So Francis got landed with, with being the Roman pontiff, in fact, even though that office per se doesn't supposedly exist anymore, but he got stuck with all the devolution from that and, you know, maintaining that side of the religion, right? And uh, Ratzinger went off and, and uh, decided to be the, the Christian, the Christian uh, father that he's supposed to be. It's all crazy. But yeah, well, but Ratzinger would rather be the Christian side of it, which is they don't do child sacrifices. They don't do that. Why is the one that's in the spotlight the bad one? The one that hurts children and does worships money and traffics people? Because who would want to be stuck with that role? <laughs> So <laughs> that's why it's simple. Only, only a, a man who was utterly obligated to do whatever the Pope said would do it. And he's a Jesuit. A Jesuit can't be Pope. It's, it's not possible. 
a Jesuit lives, breathes, and acts, and is a soldier of the Pope. He takes his orders from the Pope. That's why when there's rec records saying that Francis really isn't the Pope, that's actually true, because he's doing things that, that ritualistically no Pope has ever done, and then they're not supposed to do it. That's because he isn't it. He isn't. And that's what Kevin Annette Annette, I got to say his name right. I always say Annette, it's really Annette. Um, that's what he said. He's right. Well, I mean, think about it. The, 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 the Jesuit order are the soldiery of the Pope, personally, his soldiers, his own. Okay. And he can tell them, go here and slit somebody's throat and they will do it because they believe that he's the Pope and, and that they, you know, owe him that kind of absolute unquestioning uh devotion okay? <laughs> okay yep and so you know he turns to his loyal jesuits and he says okay guys choose one among you who's going to be the scapegoat and they all they all raise their hands and say george george let george do it <laughs> okay and so they dump all this on george brogarlio and you know suddenly he's he's obligated by his own oath to the pope to do whatever the Pope tells him. And so the Pope tells him, okay, so you're gonna play Pope. You're gonna take over my role as the Roman pontiff and you're going to do all the dirty work and you're gonna handle all the dirty money and you're going to tell all the lies. You're going to be the, the antithesis, the antichrist to my role as playing the Christian father. And so when you look around for the Antichrist, you don't have to look any further than Pope Francis, who's playing the role of the Antichrist in front of your eyes every day. Yeah, that he is one evil man. And if people ha haven't figured that out, and you're saying, I, I, I can't separate out the actions from the man, and even if he's being told to do it, but if he's being told to do it by somebody else, he might be the Antichrist, but somebody's telling him to do it. What does that make the person who's telling him to do it? Exactly. And furthermore, what, why isn't the church, why aren't the Roman Catholics of this entire planet saying, number one, we're leaving. Like yesterday. Number two, we're taking, or, or number two, we're taking control. And we're kicking out anybody that has any of these, you know, mystery Babylon trappings and practices. If we Which find includes it, almost everyone, everyone at the Vatican. Well. Is there anything that's not again, messed Sarah, up? I, again, Sarah, I would suggest to you that their safety in being able to pull this off has depended on secrecy. There's no way that they could be sacrificing children and drinking their blood and having sex with little, little kids and, and doing all of these completely heinous things, except for secrecy and blackmail. There is no way on earth that they could get away with this in the church or anywhere else, except for secrecy and blackmail. Well, that's my point. It's like it's a devolved state, and you would think that through time it, it would dissolve because it's so awful. And even the people part of it know it's awful. 
So it's, it's just such an interesting thing. And, and so that's why we have the awareness is what will dissolve it. And this, this, it's a made up paradigm. I mean, by, by some kind of demons and whatever this alien thing was and whatever, we got to figure all this out, but we are in the process here in this country of fixing this by getting, by doing this, by fixing our power structure. And now you have, you wanted to talk about the whole banking system, because that is such a powerful, important part of this. Can you explain that? Okay. Well, Semiramis began the use of symbolic um, money. Okay. And the way this was done, and the reason it was done was back in the day, Babylon was a major grain producer. They produced all sorts of wheat and barley and, and other grains uh, that were very valuable in trade as foodstuffs. And so they had these granaries set up all over Babylon and farmers would bring their grain into these granaries and then the bureaucrats would dispense grain according to standard measures. And, you know, let's just call it a bushel, though it wasn't a bushel, all right? Uh, so it was a real pain in the butt to use uh, grain as a trade item because you'd have to take 40 bushels of grain and move it by ox cart or donkey cart uh, to another location and then store it there. And this was how they did accounts, is that they were moving all this this grain back and forth, right? Yeah, so money as trade makes sense, right? Well, what she did is she, she saw that grain was selling for a specific amount of money in the, you know, a, a specific amount of trade goods in the marketplace. And so she took this little gold coin, and we actually have examples of this coin. And what it was is just a little round gold coin that was stamped with a sheaf of wheat. You know, it had a symbol on it of a sheaf of wheat. And so that was equal to one bushel, okay? And so you could, you could have a, a little sack of these gold coins that were equal to a huge, huge amount of, of wheat, right? And you could trade these as if it were wheat. Yeah, it makes sense. And go to Babylon, you know, and you could go to Babylon and you could collect it at one of their granaries. All right. So it was just a convenience, a symbolic way of trading bushels of wheat without actually having to go get bushels of wheat <laughs> and actually transfer ownership and possession of bushels of wheat. Yeah, it makes a lot and, of sense. And that's, Okay, so she did that, and that's where money was born, and that's why it was gold, because that's what she used as, as the medium to strike these little coins. And it's really just an outgrowth of idolatry. Idolatry, think about it. What, what, what this, little, this little tiki god that has been carved out of wood and that, that represents, you know, the god of the forest, right? Isn't that a representation? an idol of a god? Well, and isn't money a representation of wheat in that first example? Well, yeah. and, and if, if money can 
can stand for the value of a bushel of wheat, why can't money stand for the value of a block of cheese or a uh, ride on a ferry system or a sea? Well, and that's what they did. Exactly. So suddenly money becomes the ultimate commodity and gold, which money was made of, becomes the actual physical commodity of great value. Because why? Because they, they need the gold to make more of these little gods, these little idols that can represent anything. I mean, it's really magic. It's a great con game. It's a wonderful magic trick, but it's all just bull. It's, it's fake. It's, you know, we're deluding ourselves. Yeah, but it's practical. So it's practical for what we're trying to do. I mean, bartering makes them is, I mean, I did, it's, it's the goods that have the value, not the money, but it, it's a practical thing. It becomes evil when you, when that becomes the value, not the goods that it's servicing. Well, and it's even worse, Sarah, because um, inevitably when, once we got started down this path of symbolic value, which is just idolatry, you know, it's cast in a different form. Uh, your, your God becomes the coin instead of the little, you know, idol, the little statue, okay? There's really no difference. This is the same thing. It's idolatry. And so what do you do? So how do you fix that and have a functioning? Well, Go ahead. I, I, I think I've talked about this before, but um, with you, what, what I suggested is, okay, well, why don't we just have a universal currency that is increases in value dependent on the improvement of the environment and of the lives of the people in each country and you know the standard of education and the skill of your workforce and the health of your workforce what if your the value of your money were to increase based on improvements in your natural environment within your country. You know, give, give people something to work for that's positive instead of negative. You know, get, give them rewards that are based on doing good things instead of bad things. I mean, right now, people are getting rewarded by raping, pillaging, scheming, uh, figuring out new ways of poisoning, uh, you know, they're, they're getting rewarded for bad things. And people are close enough to animals so that a lot of them are doing this. They don't, they don't have a moral compass. They don't realize what they're doing. And so turn that on its head and make it profitable for people to do good. And if you do that, well, then suddenly you're going to find all sorts of people waking up and going, oh, Gee, you know, I don't have to make nerve gas for a living. Yeah. So, uh, but you, which makes sense, you have a structure for creating a new banking system that would work within the United States. And it's very important that we do this in order for the assemblies and for this whole government system for us to reclaim what we are. Can you explain what that is? Sure. Um, basically, commercial banks are lawless. 
commercial banks are like pirates, okay? If you, if you leave them to do what they're going to do, they're just going to be wild, crazy pirates. Um, and unfortunately, they got out of the barn like horses, grabbed the bit in their teeth, and went right on down the road after the Second World War. Uh, so what we have to do is find ways of bringing the commercial banks back under the public law so that they're not operating in a lawless fashion. So how do we do that? Well, we happen to have these other banks called international trade banks that deal in actual assets. And just yep. the fact that they have to deal with actual assets tends to keep them honest. But also the international trade banks are chartered under the public law and they're obligated to obey the public law. So if you have international trade banks that deal with actual gold, silver, diamonds, and that sort of thing that are standing under the public law, and each one of those trade banks has a wholly owned subsidiary commercial bank, this also brings the commercial banks back under the public law because their ownership has to function under the public law. See? Yeah, it's too bad that they're not I mean, this is the whole crux of it is that they're not being held up to any kind of moral law that they should be held up to. Like they're funding human trafficking, that kind yeah, of stuff. They're funding anything that makes a profit, anything. And so um, what, what you do is you bring the commercial banks under the ownership of the international banks and the international banks are under the public law, so then they have to manage the commercial banks under the public law. And that solves the problem of wild, crazy, uh, lawless banks. And how does that deal with basic mortgages and things? Because I've heard through you know talking to a lot of people that are I mean, there's so much usury that people don't understand and that they make so much money off of us as assets. And this mortgage system is, is another slave system that they've figured out how to keep us sucked in for our life. How do you explain or how is it that you set this up so people can actually be free and not be debt slaves? Well, the irony of it is, is that the people are the actual landlords. And you've got a group of middlemen in there chiseling away, uh, acting as if they were the employees and, and bond servants of the landlords. And then these middlemen just conveniently mistake the landlord for someone else. It, it, because a lot of these, these, these uh, mortgages, the banks no longer manage them. It goes to these corporations that are owned by are they owned by the Vatican or the British corporation? And they're just making money hand over fist on us, aren't they? Well, of course, it's the biggest scam that ever was. And if it all goes back to the idea that you can indebt future generations. Can you really indebt anyone who isn't even born yet? Well, they figured it out through this process. Well, yes, but it's all just bogus. It's all just, it, it's, it's self-explanatory that it's wrong and that it's fraudulent. Yeah. And, you know. yeah. So, so now how do we get ourselves out of this? So if we have a mortgage, for example, with these banks, can we help people get out of their mortgages? 
um, in a ethical way? Well, yeah. Well, mortgages by their own nature are unethical. Okay. And they're illegal. All right. And they're certainly unlawful. So there's really no excuse for mortgages to exist except to balance out the monetary system. And the big fear of, of just erasing the mortgages is that if you do that, you suddenly um, are making all of that money available and flooding the market because suddenly Sarah Westall doesn't have to pay her mortgage this month. Guess what? This means that Sarah Westall suddenly has all that money in her pocket to do what? Either spend or save, right? Well, that, but that will just, uh, I, I would think that would help spur the market to do well, but I don't know, keep going. Okay, so, well, what it does is it causes inflation. Because well, it would cause inflation if all sorts of, if everybody, if that happened to everybody at once, it'd be like printing a lot of money. Yes, it would. And that's, that's the only danger in destroying the mortgages. And so instead of wholesale destruction of the mortgages, what we do is we take it off the burden off of the individual people. And we put the burden of the mortgage back where it belongs on the corporations that foisted all this off on us. So the, you know, the people that are holding the mortgages, right, are not cheated. And the people who have the mortgage aren't burdened. And you do this quickly, but gradually across the entire spectrum. And you start with quote unquote residential mortgages so that people are not evicted from their homes and so that they have money to improve their homes and they have money to pay dental bills and they have money to send their kids to good schools, okay? And you try to inform everyone and educate everyone so that they make better use of the money that they suddenly have, okay? And so what we've got going is a, a program where the mortgage gets paid off month by month using a vendor card, which is prepaid credit. And we're all familiar with the concept of prepaid credit, right? You, yep, you, know, yep. you go to Walmart, you buy a gift card, and they put the money on the gift card. And, okay. So these are prepaid vendor cards. And when you get a bill that is addressed to Sarah Westall in all capital letters, which all mortgages are, okay, uh, you can take your vendor card that has your mortgage company's name uh, on your list of vendors, and you can use your vendor card, your prepaid credit, to pay off that mortgage. Wow. Okay. So, and it doesn't cost you a dime. And, but now is, do you see that if, if I don't have a house, let's say I'm a Minnesotan, I want a house, I go get a house, will the house be bought through that credit as well? Yeah, you, you'd basically be using this as a means of paying any mortgage on that house, because you see, you don't, or you have no mortgage, you don't owe a mortgage. The, the thing that's actually being billed and the thing that owes the mortgage is a 
municipal corporation. That, that thing, Sarah Westhall in all capital letters, that's not you. That, that's, a, that's a municipal corporation named after you. And since you don't actually own that mortgage, you shouldn't be paying it. You should be getting credit back from that corporation. But the credit side has been blocked. And so what you do is you're just accessing prepaid credit that you, that you and your ancestors already paid. Well, that's what it is. It's asked, okay, that's what I'm getting to. You've already paid that. And so you're accessing credit that you've already paid and tapping into that is rightfully yours. Right. It's not a welfare benefit. It's rightfully yours because your, your ancestors have been paying this for years and it's yours and it's BS. Right. Okay. So anyway, if you do it that way, nobody gets hurt. The inflation can be controlled. People can be educated to make better use of their money and their investment capabilities. And, you know, we can have a far better world and we can, we can incentivize good behavior on the part of organizations so that instead of, uh, well, for example, aluminum manufacturers, um, we've had fluoride in our drinking water for generations and that has uh, crippled us in many ways and, and devalued our health in many ways. Um, but it's to support the aluminum industry. Fluoride is a, a, a very toxic uh, and evil byproduct of aluminum manufacturing. And so the aluminum manufacturers uh, spun up this tale of, you know, well, fluoride um, will uh, do this wonderful thing for your teeth. It'll keep your teeth uh, from rotting in your head and it will uh, it'll also kill you. It will also cause adrenal failure. But, you know, forget that part. <laughs> and so anyway, this, I'm just using this as an example. The, uh, to make profit for itself and to avoid having to uh, dispose of the dangerous byproduct of aluminum manufacturing, the aluminum manufacturers uh, sold all the municipal governments this bill of goods about uh, uh, fluoride preventing tooth decay. And well, it, it prevents tooth decay because it's poison. <laughs> okay, well, it, so, it's ridiculous. Okay, so. Here you have the aluminum manufacturers who are skating out from having to dispose of, you know, the cost of disposing of a dangerous byproduct and making a profit on it at our expense. Well, so number one, we see the lie and we see the motivation and, and we go, no, manufacturers, you're going to have to bear the expense of getting rid of your own dangerous byproduct, number one, and they're going to increase the cost of aluminum accordingly. But when our health is at stake, do we really care? No. Well, it makes no sense. I mean, you, you're not going to, yeah. So how can people learn more about this and get involved? I, every state has its own assembly and every state has its ability. You go to them and you get things figured out. Uh, how can you help people understand? Okay. Well, I started out talking about the three populations, the Americans, the military, 
and the federal civil service, right? Well, there are also three assemblies that naturally result, right? So we have what we call our American state assemblies. We have district assemblies of two different kinds because we have a federal district for the military and we have a municipal district for the federal civil servants, okay? So all your life you've seen um, signs out on the roads, you know, Alan Smith for District Assembly 4, you know, and, and they've been having all these elections for these District Assembly people. Well, that's the foreign government. Anytime you see district, it means District of Columbia. It means federal. It means it's their assembly. It isn't ours. All right. And so then you have to figure out, okay, well, I'm in the military, so I'm in a federal district assembly. Oh, well, gee, I'm a federal civil servant. Uh, I, I work for the post office, so I'm in a municipal district, and I, I go to the municipal district assembly. Okay, this makes sense. So it has to do with, it has to do with who you work for more than where you were born? Yep. Wow, I thought it was who you were if born. You okay, so it's who you work for, and then you clean it up. But once you clean it up, then do you go to your that you clean it up to end up going to your Minnesota? Like I'm a Minnesotan, and would you clean it up to go eventually? Do you land back there? If you're if you know if you realize what you're doing, if you know who you are, you do. But you see, most people aren't taught any of this, and so. Um, let's just take Sarah Westall as, as a typical high school student who doesn't know any of this. You, you are now in a dual citizenship capacity as a territorial and a municipal citizen, and you join the army coming out of high school, okay? Instantly, they latch upon that and they say, oh, well, you really are a U.S. citizen, U dot S dot citizen, capital C. Okay, so welcome to the Army, Sarah Westall, Private Westall. You are now a British territorial subject, officially. And you are going to stay in that role officially for the next four years, your tour of duty, all right? So you spend four years in the Army and you've been a loyal British citizen the whole time. The end of your tour comes up and you decide to get married and go home and raise a family, right? Typical. But you don't know that anything about all this political status junk. You don't know what citizen implies. And so you don't do anything to change anything. And you go back home to Ohio and settle down and raise your family. And you're still in that foreign citizenship status. And the army is still got his long hand out over you, manipulating everything and telling you what you have to do. And so long as you accept that and don't write to the, the head of the army, the branch of the service that you were attached to, and tell them that you've returned home to your uh, birthright political status, they will continue to treat you as a member of the armed services on a reserve status. They'll never get out of the army. 
And so they, you have to acknowledge that you have to know that, but those are people. Okay. So somebody who has been in the military has a different process than somebody who has not been well, in the military. So somebody who's been in the military. Well, go ahead. you all start out with this dual citizenship conferred upon you and presumed upon you, right? From the time of your baby. Well, what if you take another route? What if you're standing there at the end of high school and you decide to take the federal civil service test and work for the post office? Okay, that's a legitimate choice in life. Uh, so you go to work for the post office. You're under municipal law the entire time that you're working for the post office and you are considered municipal citizenry. And you know, we're talking about Joe Biden. Well, right there, when he, he used the word mandate, what is a mandate? A mandate is a uniquely um, private trust agreement. And he is acting as your trustee if you're a municipal citizen. And he's calling upon all the municipal citizens to get vaccinated, okay? But if you're not a municipal citizen, you're under no obligation. You have to be able to recognize when something applies to you and when it doesn't. And you know, if you, yep. if you obey his mandate, well, then that implies that you're a municipal citizen, doesn't it? But the only municipal, I'm gonna say this again, the only municipal citizens are the ones that work for the post office or the federal government. Everybody else, well, go ahead. Okay, think about this. Are military federal employees? No, the military is, it's that they're the separate group that you're talking about. You got the military who's a separate group, right? And then you got the, the post right. office and the federal employees like Biden. That's another group. And then you got people like me who work for private companies and my own thing. Okay, well, you actually have two groups of federal employees. You've got territorial employees and municipal employees, and they're both federal employees, right? Because they're both federal subcontractors, just two different groups of subcontractors as if you had Halliburton and Raytheon, okay? They're, they work for different power structures. They work for different CEOs, right? But they're, but they're both federal subcontractors. So then now what would be, so that those would be two different groups. And so you have a little bit different process that you go through. You have and then what would you do for, so how many different processes are there? There's basically only two. There's a person like you who's actually a private civilian, an American and a Minnesotan, and, and you just come back and say, okay, well, I'm Sarah Westall. I was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota on July 1st, 1980 or whatever. And, um, and I'm a Minnesotan and an American by birth. And I'm claiming my birthright political status and I'm claiming my DNA and my good name and blah, 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 all the things that are mine by, by birthright. Yep. So you, you claim that and you record that. You bring forward two witnesses who confirm that you are actually Sarah Westall, who was born in Minneapolis, blah, blah. Okay. And so there you have your, your actual political status declared and recorded. And that's important. 
Okay. Now, if you are, you know, let's say you are, are Joe Schmo and uh, you served eight years in the Navy and you're coming home now, you don't just leave it out there that, you know, you're a federal U dot S dot citizen capital C. You write to the head of the Navy and you say, Dear sir, I, Joe Schmo, you know, uh, bosun's mate, third class, have returned to my birthright uh, political status as a Minnesotan. All the best, Joe. And then they have to honor that, right? They have to honor that. And, and what does it change for you by doing that besides fixing the United States, which is what we want to do? What does it personally, how does it have a personal effect on you? What does that mean? Well, the two biggest things that happen immediately is that you claim your constitutional guarantees. All your rights come flooding back and are applicable to you. You no longer all this BS that they're subjecting you to, or to everybody to, you're required to follow anymore because it's not, your those law. laws don't apply to you, right? Right. It's not your law. Federal code applies to federal employees and corporations. It's an international and global form of law that does not apply to Joe Average American. Never did. And what? And all those courts, they're, they're supposed to be courts of strictly limited jurisdiction. They're supposed to address things like international fishing rights. They're not supposed to be uh, dictating the results of your divorce and every single thing about your health care and everything else. So uh, now when you're working for an employer who is following mandates, what do you do then? Well, uh, you obviously have the choice to quit. Yeah. Or you can seize upon your birthright political status and claim your exemption. And hope that they have a clue with the employer. Well, the employers may or may not have clues, but if they're corporations and they're doing something evil to you, they are in a position of great vulnerability because a corporation receives its charter under conditions that they operate for lawful purposes. And it is not lawful to make a, a coercive and um, improper demand upon anyone, whether they're an employee or not. Yeah, it's against the Nuremberg Code. It's it's so it's it's wrong on every level, and this will eventually bite them. But in the meantime, people are following these. Oh, we're getting ready, Sarah. So right now, we've got a think tank of all sorts of wonderful uh, legal and lawful gurus who are putting together uh, the method to take out corporations like Pfizer. Monsanto. Ooh. Yeah. Right. That that's God's work. I'm I'm serious. That's as close to God's work as it gets by taking out Pfizer and these evil companies that are poisoning people yep. for profit. And that's what we're doing. We are working uh, as a working group to find all the ways and means to take out evil corporations 
and to liquidate them and hold their CEOs and their board of directors accountable. Well, how far are you along in that process, would you say, with Pfizer? Uh, we just started that process when we realized that Pfizer was a big problem. And uh, so about, I'd say two months into, into the research. And, and there are even bigger, badder corporations that are responsible for Pfizer. Well, uh, BlackRock, Yeah, okay, yeah. Does BlackRock okay. own a significant part of Pfizer? Probably, I haven't looked into it, but probably. They uh, own, they own, uh, when I looked last, over 50% of, I don't know. It, it's a significant portion of all corporations on the exchange that they own. Right, and they're, they're right to be busted for monopolistic acquisition. Absolutely. Because it's they and have so, too much power. Yeah. So there are a lot of, of these corporations that need to go down and need to be split up, just like Reagan busted AT&T. You know what? They always figure out how to create some game out of everything. And so the people that they busted up ended up making a fortune. It's like when they busted up the oil, big oil conglomerates back in the day, they ended up making more money from each individual stock. And it was it's it, there it needs to be done in a way that doesn't just give even more power to the people who own it it gets separated more go ahead well yeah right well, yeah we we need to see the cause and effect and there needs to be a punitive value to what we do to these corporations so that they're discouraged from doing the same things again yeah or yeah, to the point where if you do this again, you will be locked up for the rest of your life. Or maybe you well, won't have that, a life. <laughs> well, you know, the criminality is separate from the, com the commercial aspects, um, even though they try to, to say that all crimes are commercial. The, the point of it is, is that when you actually do harm to a living man or woman, that is a crime with, it, it's an injurious crime. You can't hurt a corporation the same way that you can hurt an individual man or woman. And a corporation doesn't have the limitations of an individual man or woman. So the crime of hurting a man or woman is a graver crime and a more uh, substantial crime than anything you can do to a corporation, just by its very nature. And so you're talking about quote unquote injurious crimes which is what happens when I'm an injured party. And you have statutory crimes, which is what happens when a corporation is harmed. So, you know, basically, corporations shouldn't exist. Corporations um, have been given a public benefit. And a great many people have been fooled into seeking that public benefit without realizing what they're losing. What are they losing, would you say? Because there is an issue with, um, uh, you know, when I've ran a company, there was there, and I still am, but not a multi-million dollar one. But I did realize that when you're working with the public and you're in doing services for the public, you, you need a protection personally, because you could be, I mean, when you don't even do anything wrong, and you're just nailed left, 
and right. And so it, there is a protection that is needed for companies because people aren't ethical. I mean, let's face it. Well, if you reduce the, um, the, the basis of all those claims so that you're not being attacked with spurious things, okay, um, which is you know, part of what happened with the medical um, profession and with medicine in general is that once it became a for-profit enterprise, it became subject to all of these spurious different claims you know, oh, I spilled hot coffee on my lap, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, it became a, it, it becomes overwhelming and that in and of itself destroys the business and that hurts society as well. So we don't allow that. We don't allow those kinds of, of spurious claims. We never did in the past. There's no reason why we do now, except that the insurance companies actually ultimately profit from this. Even though they wind up paying out claims, they get a lot more in people who are scared and therefore pay them insurance premiums and their racketeering business soars. See, 90% of what we have as a problem here started out with the insurance industry in 1702. Hmm. Insurance is legalized gambling and it's evil by its very nature. We don't need insurance what we need is indemnity and we're too stupid to even know that what do you mean that we need indemnity because let's say you're you get in a car accident and now you really you don't have the money to be able to deal with because you're really damaged um it's so that everybody pays a little bit to deal with the fact that once in a while some you're going to have something massive that you can't afford so how do you deal with that in a way that's more ethical well, Sarah, look at it this way. Uh, when you're a baby, you're completely helpless, right? Yep. And we all know that at the end of our lives, we may be completely helpless again, right? Yep. And in between, as we look around us, we see many of our brethren who are addicted to drugs and render themselves helpless, or they are... Um, crippling themselves with alcohol, or they develop mental problems that they can't overcome like depression or manic depressive behavior, okay? So we've got this entire range of people who to one extent or another are disabled. And then we have all of these for-profit companies that are making their money off of the disabled. Yeah. And those are all for profit companies. So guess what? They have a motive to create more disability so that they have more customers so that they make more money. So what's the answer? We make medicine nonprofit. Well, I and we provide indemnity for our people. As a, as a social cost, instead of having each one of them pay private insurance, we indemnify them so that when they need medical care, it's taken care of. Well, we, we no longer have the, the censorship so that real solutions can start coming forward. I mean, there's, we, we shouldn't have this much sickness, actually. I mean, there's a lot of 
Sickness is caused. Yeah, the majority of it. By medicine. The the medical industry is now causing disease. It's now causing illness in order to promote its own wealth. It is making profit off of sickness. Therefore, it's causing more sickness. This is not rocket science. We should all realize it. Unfortunately, Dick Nixon was the best buddy of the head of Kaiser Permanente, a giant hospital conglomerate. And back during the Nixon administration, uh, a sector of the economy that had been held inviolate and had been held as a nonprofit uh, sector for generations was suddenly turned into a for-profit sector of the economy. Medicine became for-profit under Dick Nixon. And when that happened, all hell broke loose because all of these motivations for profit came into play. And suddenly medicine, instead of profiting from curing, profited from causing illness. So that one thing really affected the whole infrastructure. So people were not, it really functioned quite well before that time. Well, it didn't have the wealth applied to it that it should have had. Uh, Medicine did not have the the money that it needed to do the research and, and to actually, you know, meet the goals, right? Yeah, so it still had issues. It was just different issues. Well, I think things kind of, um, I think things kind of started to fall apart prior to Nixon, about 20, 30 years prior to Nixon, things started to fall apart because uh, you started to get the interplay of health issues with modern industry. Well, they were focusing on it since the, you know, when they started persecuting um, holistic doctors they were putting all the you know, Rockefellers and so forth were putting um, their, their people on the medicine boards of all the different universities. They had con- Congress, they changed laws in Congress. What was it, 1911, 1912? I don't know, around that time where they mandated that, that only the AMA, the American Medical Association determined you know, who could practice medicine, that kind of stuff. They started screwing things up pretty bad. Yeah, they did. They did. The Rockefellers have always been very cagey about finding a choke point and benefiting themselves from it. Well, they did a good job on that one, and it really hurt the American people. It hurt people around the world, and well, now we're suffering from it. Well, the AMA is yet another organization that's incorporated, and we can bust them. 